This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Tonight, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Prove it! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And I'd like to give a shout-out to two of our loyal contributors to Patreon. Uh, the first one is Ryan Story. Ryan Story. And uh, the second one is Frederick. He didn't give me a last name, so he's Kind of uh, a fan, but he doesn't want people to know it. He doesn't want people to find him and go, You actually listen to Gilbert Gottfried? That's what you do with your life? So he's just Frederick from Oslo, Norway, uh, where it's, I think most of my fans are from Oslo, Norway. And, but Frederick, uh, touch with me and give me your last name. I'll say your last name on the air. But uh, also you can contribute to Patreon and it's Frank. God's sakes. What the hell do I have you here for? The one time I need you. Usually you're just interrupting me when you're not wanted, but now all of a sudden, well, you didn't set me up here. You and and you're just leaving me out in the cold. Do you want to know what happens to when when people donate to Patreon? Would you like to to know? Well, you donate a set amount every month, and you get exclusive benefits, including early access to episodes. You get to take part in our very cool video hangout. Which is just Gilbert (laughs) images of Gilbert walking around in in slippers he's stolen from various hotels. So uh, social media shout outs like the one you just heard. And uh, also we will read your your spiel or your whatever it is you want read on the show. And I understand the Unabomber is a big fan of the show. Uh, (laughs) Read his manifesto. So that's Patreon.com. You go to Patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried to contribute to our show. And it's sort of like PBS, Gilbert, without the tote bag. Or uh, a CD of Pavarotti. Just like that. (laughs) (laughs) Mackenzie Phillips doesn't come on and bullshit for 40 minutes while you're trying to watch a documentary about the mamas and the papas. Yeah, it's like 
you don't get uh, behind the scenes information about Dalton Abbey. <laughs> Dalton Abbey. Yes. Yeah. So uh, again, that is patreon.com folks slash Gilbert Godfrey. And thank you, Ryan Story and Frederick of Oslo, Oslo, Norway. Tell us your last name, for God's sakes. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're coming to you today from the George Burns Room at the historic New York Friars Club. And our guest today is one of the funniest and most prolific comedy writers of the past 40 years. He's a multiple Emmy winner who's written classic shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm and it's Gary Shandling show, which he also co-created. He's written movies, broadways, plays, novels, He's one of the, he won the prestigious Thurber Award. He was also a staff writer on the original Saturday Night Live and an eyewitness to television comedy history. He's also the tallest Jew to ever work in show business. Our pal, Alan Swibel. Well... You mean to tell me, in the 40 years that you claim that I've been doing this, I've never seen a Jew taller than myself, that I've either looked eye-level at somebody or Uh, down? Yes, yes. Who uh, Name some tall Jews you know. uh, Larry David's pretty tall. Oh, he is a tall Jew. Whereas Billy Crystal's shorter. um, Oh, um, um, Jeff Goldblum. That's a Jeff tall Goldblum's Jew. a very, a very tall Jew. But he's not a tall Jewish writer. He's a tall <laughs> Jewish actor. Yes. Okay. Oh, we're talking only about tall Jewish writers. I thought you were. I oh, can talk okay. about any kind Let's of tall name... Jew you want. I can well, talk about tall Jewish basketball players. Neil Simon is short. He's not a pipsqueak, but yeah, he's average. Yeah, so he's not a tall Jewish Well, he was writer. average height for like our... Father's generation. He oh, might yes. be short for our generation. Yes. What are you, six when, one, Alan? Six two? I'm six one. I'm six, six one. I'm six foot. I, okay. No, I just added the one because you did. And okay. I didn't want to I make you it. feel bad. But That's all right. Carl Reiner's <laughs> sort of tall. Oh, yes. Carl Reiner's a tall Jew writer. <laughs> <laughs> he's also a 92 year old Jew writer. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, but I don't think he's lost height. During these 92 years. That, now, that's interesting, because most people lose height. Well, you know something? Now that I think about it, maybe I lost the same <laughs> amount of height, so he looks just as tall to me. <laughs> it could be that. <laughs> now, what about um, Arthur Miller? He looked tall. Uh, he looked tall. He, listen... Would Marilyn Monroe marry a short Jew writer? I don't think so. Oh, no, She no. married Joe DiMaggio, who was, I guess, a tall a, Italian baseball player. Italian uh, sitcom writer. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was thinking of a different Joe DiMaggio. That's right. The Joe DiMaggio you're talking about was a sitcom. He wrote from uh, Life of Riley, I And believe. he spelled DiMaggio differently because he was actually a Jew. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I wish I had something to say to that, but I think now, you're right. Now, now you told us uh, we're I at think? the Friars Club, and and you were telling us why you were delayed. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I was delayed. Okay, and I think that this was really nice of me, and I think the uh, the twelve people who are listening to this will agree. <laughs> you're generous. <laughs> 
the upwards of a dozen <laughs> yeah, people sure. who might hear this will uh, think that this was really nice of me, knowing that this was a podcast, okay? Yeah. So I know that pod, that's a foot. Yeah. Oh, is, oh, it? is it? Like two peas in a pod? No, I, that's a, yeah. Is that right? Well, a pod is like, <laughs> see, I always think in terms of uh, like Kevin McCarthy. Warning people. The pod reference. The, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. See, where I go a little bit more elementary, like two peas in a pod. Yeah. But thinking we were going to be two peas in a pod, actually three peas, because Frank is here, I thought I was doing everybody a big favor by going upstairs. So we're three peas. We're three peas. I, so this is a Jew with uh, bad prostate. Well, yeah, I peed three times. <laughs> plus, what I did was... <laughs> I, I went upstairs to the Friars yes. Lavatory and I used mouthwash thinking we would be so close. Why would I want to offend people who are talking thing. to... Yeah, it's, it's a very like, considerate you, thing. You thought we'd be making out during the podcast. Listen, I have my yes. dreams and if this goes the way I expect it to, I, we, can, we can reach some sort of crest and, uh, and hug and whatever happens afterwards, I'm willing to go with yes. it. Well, you may I'm, be our most considerate guest, Al. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now, you're a writer, I hear. You know something? <laughs> I've heard that, too. It's a vicious lie. But, yes, I, I wake up 5.30 every morning, and I sit down, and I try to be very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really a pleasure. It's a living hell, the whole thing. You tried doing this. You have tried. You I've do tried this. and yeah. failed miserably, <laughs> and that's why I'm doing a podcast. Oh, I see. <laughs> So, so, so if I listen to you, I have a podcast in my future. Yeah, I, you're the Just only your person right. I know who doesn't, who doesn't have, have a podcast. A podcast. Yeah. Well, they're not down to the Z's yet. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> Tell us about watching the Van Dyke Show as a kid and, and well, how you actually was, got inspired well, to do this with your life. Well, that was the greatest. You know, and I know lots of people who are my age who do what we do for a living. They say, "Why do you want to? Uh, what made you want to become a comedy writer?" And I know personally, and like I said, this same story is shared by others. I used to watch the Dick Van Dyke Show. I was like 12 years old when it came on, and uh, you know, it, it, wow, wow, look at this! You, comedy writer, TV comedy writer. He's a nice-looking man. He's got a very pretty wife, you know, Mary Tyler Moore. A very nice house in New Rochelle. They got a kid, Richie. And when he goes to work, he lies on his back on the couch and he jokes around with Buddy and Sally <laughs> yeah. all day. I go, I want to do that. <laughs> that's this very heavy, little heavy, heavy lifting. That's what I want to do. Now, you then, years later, when you were a working writer, successful writer, yeah. you were in an elevator. Well, here, this was... We can put this in the sad column. <laughs> we like to start the show with sadness. With sadness, and then build from yeah. here, yes. rise from the ashes. I was writing a Steve Martin special that Lorne Michaels was producing for NBC. That's Channel 4, Gilbert. Okay. <laughs> and um, we were rehearsing in these studios, I think, called NOLA. It was on Broadway in 57th. And we were in Studio A, rehearsing for this live special. Dick Van Dyke was doing a special, and he was rehearsing in Studio B. I knew he was in there, and I waited one night for him to come out because I wanted to meet him and spend some time with him. He came out, and we shared an elevator. And on our way down, I just said to him, I said, look, Mr. Van Dyke, I, I've got to tell you what kind of influence you are on me. 
I said, I used to watch his show, you know, married, had a kid. And my wife, we had just had our first son, Adam. I said, we just had our first son. I'm a comedy writer. I, I, we're going to buy a house. Maybe it'll be New Rochelle, but if not, it will be sort of like New Rochelle. And I just wanted to thank you for everything, for the inspiration. And he put his arm around me and he said, Alan, just a little word of uh, warning here. Uh, after five years, the Dick Van Dyke show was canceled and I became an alcoholic. <laughs> so I said, gee, um, boy, I hope this elevator goes a lot faster than it's going right now. Couldn't wait to get off there. It really deflated me. And you, you said you actually started getting teary-eyed. I did, yeah. it, it, because this is... Um, I, I had nothing but good things and good thoughts, and I thought that somebody wanted would like to hear that, that, you know, that they were an influence on somebody and that everything that he represented was coming true for me. This was probably the last thing I oh, wanted yeah. to hear. I, I didn't expect it, number one, and I looked for like a little hint of, you know, like a wink or a thing that made it good, it's okay. And, but he was pretty serious about it, you know, and I met him years later and he had no recollection of this, which led me to believe that he told this story to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's not like, oh, yeah, you're the guy I told that to. Uh-uh, yeah. that didn't come up. No. I heard you started crying. I, I, was, I, I was a little bit of tears, and I believe I banged on the elevator door at one point. <laughs> yeah. Dropped to your knees and screamed, why? Why, 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 why did I take this elevator? Yes. You were turning into Nancy Kerrigan. I had no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> wow, look at this. We're, we're 12 minutes into this, and a Tanya Harding reference yes. comes up. That's Why, why, why? <laughs> Turned into Nancy Kerrigan. That's great. Yes. Which, uh, who, surprisingly, is a tall Jewish comedy writer. Well, look at this. See how this comes full circle? Yes. It's like a Dickens novel. That. It all yeah. ties in at the end. Now, how did you start in the business? Well, I started... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, this decision was not made for me uh, by uh, to become a comedy writer. This was not my idea. Uh, the decision was made for me about 40 years ago by every law school in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> they, they, they all sat down. They looked at my, my LSAT scores, and they go, now, this is silly. This is, why even bother with this? I started writing jokes for stand-up comedians who played the, the, the Catskills, Borscht Belt. Um, uh, every Morty, Mickey, Freddie, Dickie, and Lee that ever lived, I wrote for $7. I wrote jokes for them. And that's how I started. Um, they would pay me, and some of them were real pains in the ass because they would only pay me if the joke got a laugh. So I moved in with my parents after college. And so I'm living on, at home on Long Island, and I would get in a car borrow their car and drive up to the Catskill Mountains, which was only 100 miles away, and sit in the back of the, of the Neville or the Concord or some uh, nightclub and watch them do the joke or jokes. And invariably, they'd come off the stage and they'd go shaking their head, you know, you know, Alan, uh, that joke about paving the driveway uh, went right into the toilet. And I go, gee, you know, I heard laughs. So that we would bargain and I'd go home with $4, you know? <laughs> So I was going nowhere really, really fast. Who were some of these comics, Alan? Because Gilbert and I oh, were, we're, were fans, and we would know some know of these You'll know them names. all. There were great guys also. Morty Gunty, who has since sure, passed sure. away. He was in Fre Broadway, Danny Rose, Morty yeah, Gunty. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed he was. He right. was at the table right. at the Carnegie. Right. Freddie Roman was very generous with me, very nice guy. Dick Capri was another sure. great guy. Um, 
Vic Arnell, Billy Baxter. Then there was Lee Stanley and Stanley Lee and <laughs> things. <laughs> you know, and and it was frustrating. You know, because um, they were older than me. They were like it was like writing for my my parents' friends. You know, I'm 21, and um, Freddie, who was very nice to me, says Alan Spermbanks are in the news. Can you write me a sperm bank joke? <laughs> I'm, I'm 21. Like, right. I give a shit about sperm banks. <laughs> so I write, you know, they have a new thing now called sperm banks, which is just like an ordinary bank, except here, after you make a deposit, you lose interest. Okay. Great joke. So, so now the word goes out. There's a new sperm bank guy in town, okay? So another comic calls up, got sperm bank jokes. I go, fuck, the sperm bank jokes. So I wrote another one. I think it might have been for Freddie or maybe with somebody else. I, I looked into the future because they were freezing sperm. And I said, you know, this could be a problem in the future because it's hard enough telling a kid he's adopted. How do you tell him he's been defrosted? Okay, $7, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Wasn't, wasn't there an $18 joke, even though the going rate was there, 7 Well, I'll tell you, there was you a feeding that? frenzy I had written. Okay. <laughs> They, they got, I got high. I got $18 for a joke that I had written about a Hasidic orgy, which was very unusual because the men were on one side of the room and the women were on the other. They were, they, were, they, were, they were clawing each other. Funny. They were counting the shit. They get to that joke. Yeah, it, it, it was just pure joke writing. These guys were interchangeable to a great extent. They were tuxedoed guys. Uh, who um, got up on stage and told you jokes, but they, they, there was no distinct personality. Like years later, it was easier, like writing for like Rodney, because you know, Rodney had the thing, I don't get no respect. So to have him say, even as an infant, I didn't get any respect, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She said she liked me as a friend. See, that was easy yeah. to have him say this stuff, you know? But these other guys was just pure joke writing. So I um, took all the jokes they wouldn't buy from me. <laughs> And I made it into a stand-up act myself. And that's where I met you a million years ago. I went on stage at the Improv and Catch a Rising Star to tell these jokes. I was going to ask, when, when did you guys meet? Do you, do you I, have a recollection? I remember Gilbert at the Improv. This must have been 74. Were you there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he started when he was 15. Yes. Okay, I saw you. The first time I ever saw you, you had circular bar trays. I still use doing- it. <laughs> Why throw anything yeah. out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why update anything? Because yeah. what was good 40 years ago, has, it's back it's again. It's back again. now. It's it. But you used to take two circular bar trays, bar trays, I remember, and put it on either side of you and go, iron sides. Yes. <laughs> Jeez, I remember that bit. <laughs> yeah. I became friends with Larry David and, and the people, Elaine Boozler was around back then. Ed Bluestone. And I remember you used to do a thing with Larry David <laughs> where you'd be a heckler in yeah. the audience. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be a guy <laughs> from Palermo for some reason. <laughs> I can't do accents. I can't do anything. For some reason, at one point in Larry's act, when I thought that he had gotten more than enough laughs for that evening, I would come in and I would just start taking the chairs and tables and making sort of a ruckus over it. And we, we would talk yeah. and... Um, I would be the, he called me the Italian gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> and if you remember, I, we were just talking to Susie Esman about it, how Larry was like the worst on stage if he thought somebody wasn't laughing. Well, it was amazing because like on a Friday night, Bud Friedman would give me, let's say, the 920 slot to go on. 
and let's say Larry was on at 9 o'clock, okay? So I would follow him theoretically 20 minutes later. But if I knew that Larry was getting on at 9, I'd also get to the club at 9 because I could very well be getting on at 9.01 if Larry didn't like what he saw out there. Because he would get up there sometimes for literally 30 seconds, go, ah, I don't like you people, and put the mic back and walk off. It was legendary what he used to do. I wonder if, if Susie told you. This is, I'm quoting Larry now, okay? Um, we all used to sit in the back of the club because Larry was on a different plane than everybody, you know? And he'd get up on a Friday night at the improv, and you had a real white bread sort of audience from Jersey with lime pants, you know, and blue hair. You, you know, you know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And you know, these fat wives would drag their husbands in. Now they're at the club. Larry in those days used to have wire rim glasses. He had hairs, and it was like in a, a sort of curly afro. Yeah, kind yeah, of thing. like the Jufro. The Jufro. Yeah. And he had a, a green army fatigue jacket. Oh, like, yes, yes. Right, because he yeah. was in the reserves or something. And he'd get on stage, and I'd be sitting in the back with, with other comedians, and uh, he'd look out at, like I said, this, it looks like the young Kippa audience out there, okay? This was not your hip room. Yes. And Larry's first words would be something along the lines, he says, I feel very comfortable with you people tonight. In fact, I feel so comfortable that I'm thinking of using the two form of the verb instead of usted. <laughs> now, That's I'm great. laughing my ass off in the back because A, I think it's really funny, and B, this audience is in oil painting at this point. Okay? <laughs> There's like sagebrush going through. They're just, they're, just, they're just frozen. So you know better than anyone that whatever a comedian hits a snag, you go another way, especially right out of the box. But Larry just kept on going. He says, I think a lot of people misuse the two form. <laughs> he, he, he said, like when they, steep, they stab Caesar, he looked at his friend Brutus and said, A2 Brutus? <laughs> and even Brutus said, Caesar, I just stabbed you. If, ever, if there was ever a time for Usted, it's now. And the audience would just stare at him, and uh, then he'd go, uh, I don't like you people, and walk off. Yeah. And I'd get on at 9.01. Susie said uh, he was doing a bit, and he involved a bungalow, and somebody had the, the audacity to say, what's a bungalow? And that was too much for him. He just slipped. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> he just, got, he just I, left. I, he didn't want to deal with no. anybody who didn't know what a bungalow was. See, no, no, that I didn't know. Quite, wow. quite often, they'd have to separate them. Like Larry would get into a fight with someone like they were going outside. Well, the beautiful thing about Larry is he stuck to his guns and he waited for the rest of the world to catch up to him. You know what I mean? When you think about it, he, there were times that he would write scripts and he didn't have a pot to pee in, okay? He would write a script and producers were willing to give him what, what for him at that time was a lot of money and but uh, let's, can we change that from a red tie to a blue tie? They'd give him a note yeah, like that. Yeah. And Larry, Larry goes, it's supposed to be a red tie. And he turned down the, okay, he would, when we, um, you know, when I was doing It's Gary Shandling's show, I gave him a script to write. And um, it, it, it almost took a toll on our friendship because the show was in full stride at this point and changes had to be made in it. Larry's script was fantastic. But at that point, it was for another show because the show had evolved into something else. And um, he always, always saw things his way. And it ended up that the world then became 
ready for Larry. The beautiful thing about him, and we're still best friends at this point, is that if you go th- to our house and look through our, our albums, oh, yeah, that's when Larry slept on our couch uh, in the Hamptons. Oh, that's when uh, Larry uh, went with us to the Bahamas. Oh, it, my wife, you would buy him a pajamas or a toaster oven and stuff. And now he can walk down the street and go, that's a nice building. Put that in the yeah. car. I need a new stadium. Put that in there. And I'm just, I couldn't be more proud of him. It's inspiring. That's how things caught up to him. It's really yeah. inspiring, yeah. and it should be a lesson to everybody. Yeah, yeah and we met. Uh, you and I met at the Improv. Yes, indeed and we yeah. did. And I always thought, I always used to stay to watch you because I never saw anything like this before in my life. I didn't know how to describe it. And I would go home and tell people, there's this guy. <laughs> And I didn't get much further than that. I just said, there's this guy. And then one time my parents came to the club and went, that's the guy. <laughs> the guy doing Ben Gazzara jokes. <laughs> ben Gazzara yeah. jokes, yeah. 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 So you decided to do your own material. Uh, just to advertise right. my writing. Right. Just to advertise my writing and um, hoping that a manager, an agent, somebody would come in and help me get a job uh, as but as a writer. You were doing your failed jokes, getting the ones, the ones that they that wouldn't didn't buy. Sell <laughs> the ones that didn't sell to the those rejects. guys. The rejects. Well, there was one joke I wrote for them. There was one joke I wrote for them that they didn't buy. And when I ultimately auditioned with Lauren Michaels to show him my jokes, because he was looking for writers for this brand new show that was going to be called Saturday Night Live, I, I typed up what I believed were 1,100 of my best jokes, I, okay? And I met him in the city, and he opened the book, and the first book, first book, the first joke was a joke that I had written for the Catskill guys. None of them bought the joke. He read that one joke, and he said, very good, and he closed the, the book, and basically, and he even tells the story that that joke turned his head around and very much got me the job. I mean, they read the rest of the jokes, ultimately, but I had written a joke just to show you how long ago it was uh, from the reference points uh, saying that the post office was going to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. It's a 10 cent stamp. If you want to lick it, it's a quarter. Okay. okay. <laughs> and, and, and he liked it, you know. And uh, think about how long ago that was. There's no more 10 cent stamps. Right. There's not even quarter cents. And you don't lick stamps anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 1975, yeah. right? So I might as well be doing Brontosaurus jokes. Yeah, at this there's ba- barely a post office left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, True. Like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I wonder if I can change that into like an Instagram joke or something. <laughs> No, I go to, um, when I do my speaking engagements, if I'm speaking to people like our age, no explanation is needed. But if I'm going to a college where there's 17 and 18-year-old kids, when I get up to that to tell them that joke that got me the job on SNL, I hold my breath just a little because I don't know if it's going to make sense to them. They're 17 years old, 18 years old. They have no concept that stamps were ever licked. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very possibly. The, the possibly. idea of mailing letters is like <laughs> something that's forgotten about. Yeah, those big, big things, those depositories that are on, the, on the corners, street corners, yes. that are painted red and blue sometimes, yeah. and people shove stuff. What is that for? <laughs> yeah, think about it. I wonder about that. Has the, has the mail, has the post office, um, is there less mail that's going out and around? That's a good question. Do messengers still exist, given that there are emails and fax machines are out of... Yeah, I don't think there are messengers, too oh many messengers God. anymore. I, I had a few messenger jobs <laughs> when, when I was really? like, yeah. They said, take this affidavit yeah, and bring yeah, it down to the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Now I would have lost work. <laughs> now I feel badly about the work you would have lost. <laughs> this is... So Lauren offers you a job on the strength, essentially, of this one joke. Well, I think it t- turned his head a little right. bit. There were, there were literally 1,100 jokes now, in there that he had a show, Dick Ebersol and right. the folks at NBC about. But, yeah, I think that um, this... Yeah, turned his head a bit. Yeah, and you were offered another show. This was amazing, as 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 fate would have it. See, I was writing for all these comedians, okay, and a lot of them used to open for Toadie Fields. Do you remember her? Sure. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Of course. Toadie Fields was managed by a man named Howie Hinderstein back then. And so I used to go to those shows that I wrote for these comedians for. I met this Howie Hinderstein because Toadie Fields was the closing act. He took a liking to me. He was very friendly with the producers of Hollywood Squares. Okay? So he said, why don't you write a lot of questions and bluff answers for Paul Lind? Maybe, who knows? Maybe this could be your first job. So I wrote a bunch of them. I gave it to him. He submitted it. Literally the same week that Lorne gives me the job on this new show, I get this phone call. I'm going to, I got a job if I want it as a writer for the Hollywood Squares. Now, it sounds crazy in retrospect, but in 1975, Hollywood Squares was going into like its ninth season. It was on the West Coast where the whole industry is prime time, which was a higher pay scale, and it had all these stars. It was an established brand. Well, it was established, but individually in each box, there was a a star that (laughs) had a Las Vegas act on a TV show. This was a great entree into the business as opposed to East Coast, late night, who watches television on Saturday night at 1130 right. except people people who can't get laid, right. okay? And who's John Belushi and wh- what is this? Sure. So there was a bit of a hesitation, what's the better career? All of a sudden I had to make a career move. From I was slicing locks in a deli, okay? So now all of a sudden, I went from slicing locks to, gee, I got a decision to make. Look who has a decision to make. Okay? I think you made the right one. I, uh, and, you know, and what, well, like, Saturday Night Live, people don't realize how revolutionary it was. Because what were some of the other shows on you, the air? You know, back in those days, and I have... And I re- remember them because I have a I have a folder with the rejects that uh, the the, uh, the the rejection letters that mm-hmm. they sent me when I would submit material. Carol Burnett was the gold standard at the time, but Rich Little had a show. The Jackson Five had a show. Cosby had a show. Flip Wilson had a show. Everybody eventually had their own variety show. Bobby Vinton sure. singers had their own. So that was. But I just remember growing up watching those kinds of variety shows. Sonny and Cher had a show. Bobby Darin had a show. And sitting and watching these shows. Tom Jones. Tom Jones had right. a show. Yes. The Starline Vocal Band oh, that was, yeah. was given a summer, summer replacement, replacement show. The summer replacement That's show. Right. And as a kid, I would watch these shows. I would hear people laughing on television at stuff that I didn't think was funny. <laughs> I'd go, what is this? <laughs> this, this, well, this is crazy. But this, there was something the way Lauren had described this show. It seemed like even if it didn't, if it wasn't going to be successful, it was going to be the sensibility that I thought I had because it was geared to the sons and daughters of those comics that I couldn't write for. You know what I mean? It was Alan King's 
children's generation, of which I was a part of, was the baby boomers. And Lorna had always said, it's our time to make each other laugh. And that was the only standard that we had when the show started. He said, let's make each other laugh, and if we do, we'll put it on television. And hopefully there'll be enough people who like us and tell their friends about it. You're 24, 25. At I was 24. Yeah. yeah, when he hired yeah. me, 25 when the show started. Because I remember, like, those, uh, you know, Frank and I quite often will talk about these different comedy shows and the writing on them, it's like it could be Bob Hope, it could be like a it was current a form- pop it was a formula. Star. I mean, they were written by older comedy writers. They, well, they were written by older comedy, older comedy writers, but what I didn't understand about it, I mean, look, we're all generally similar ages and I re- we remember who made us laugh and who didn't. And I couldn't understand. Look, with all due respect, and I know that Bob Hope's regarded as like one of the greatest comics of all time. He made me laugh in those Bing Crosby movies, you know, yeah, the, okay, sure. the, the, the road movies. But his monologues didn't make me laugh. I, I, I used to sit there and go, "Why are people laughing?" It was um, to me, it wasn't funny. To me, it was, you know. It made my parents laugh, okay? And here, Lorne came along, and he's, you know, the, the, the host, the host of the first show is George Carlin, who made me laugh. Yeah. Okay? I went to see the National Lampoon show, and my God, I saw Belushi, I saw Bill Murray, I saw these people, I'm going, lemmings, okay? I'm going, this, these are people who talk our language. So it made perfect sense that, that time was right for this. Now... This this brings me to another thing. Uh, a, a famous incident on Saturday Night Live was a comedy legend, one of the biggest comedy legends of all time. <laughs> oh, I Milton. think I know what's coming. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Milton Berle. Well, this was this was amazing because on paper, on paper, this there was some beautiful symmetry to this because he was the king of his generation. We were that to our generation. It was NBC and NBC. I don't know if it was the same studio. You would have to check that out. But it was a bit of, you know, it was homage to the guy who helped pave the way. And um, when he came to do the show, it was incredibly disappointing to everyone. It it was uh, incredibly disappointing because he represented or he comported himself in a way which was antithetical to the premise of the show. The premise of the show is basically whatever is, was, and, uh, you know, you play the moment and you feed off of each other. And um, he was too joke-oriented. He was not so much about the improv, okay? It was a different school altogether. I remember, for example, when he was rehearsing his opening monologue, all right, Dave Wilson was the director, and he was in the booth, and they were just rehearsing his opening monologue. I was in the studio, so I heard him do this. He said, Dave, when I get to um, this line about the water bottle, okay, um, I'd love to have a sound effect of like a crowbar (laughs) falling (laughs) on the studio floor. And let it sort of reverberate for a couple of seconds before it comes to a rest. Because when it does, I am going to ad lib. (laughs) It looks like NBC dropped another one. Listen to that sentence. I am going to ad lib. This isn't what we did. Okay, and there was another moment in the same monologue. If I remember correctly, he said to Dave Wilson, 
uh, when I get to this spot in the monologue, cut me off. Don't go any lower than, let's say, my navel, okay? He says because what he did was because below the frame of the TV, he made motions with his two hands. He says, I will do this motion with my hands when I tell them that I just turned 70. That's what it was. I'll do that motion with my hand, and they will give me a standing ovation. Because he, he knew right. from playing clubs and concerts or whatever that he could induce a standing ovation if he did that. And that's what, they did. That's what happened. It was unbearable. Yeah. It was absolutely the opposite. And of how everything. disillusioning for you guys and Lorne, who, who regarded him as a, as a hero, oh, well, as a comedy we, hero. Absolutely. Yeah. This was a forerunner. This yeah. was somebody that, you know, you know, you, you build things on the shoulders of giants. And who was bigger than Milton Berle, you know, in his day, you know? Um, it, it, it was very, very disillusioning. And if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the few shows that was never repeated. Yeah, I think I only saw it once. And it's probably not in the box set. You know <laughs> something? I don't have the box set. They yeah. never sent me a box. Those yeah. bastards! Yeah. They didn't send me a Assume box set. it's and not. And they say, I think they had written a bit between him and Gilda Radner as father and daughter. Wow, see, and, I don't yeah. even remember this. Yeah. Wow. And they said it was going to be like like kind of a nice piece. Yeah. Uh, but he just started doing shtick during all. See, of that was the thing. He, he he couldn't play character. This was the guy. If we go back in the annals of early television, he used to wear dresses and have the lipstick yeah. on, and then they would strut around. And that was comedy back then, and and it was huge comedy. People used to pull off the side of the. They, they went home. What was it on Tuesday nights or something like that? I, yeah. I think was, so. Yeah. That was the night to go to watch this. And um, but he couldn't keep a straight face. He couldn't feed you. Generosity wasn't a big no, trait. No. Okay. <laughs> Who were some of the other guest hosts that were nightmares? I think that they, you know, um, they're they're a list of them on the internet. Yeah, yes. people who've been banned from the show. Okay, they, they call. okay. I see. I don't know who was banned or not. I yeah. left the show in '80, so the banned list came sure. came yeah. afterwards. Yeah. I know that there were people who weren't used to it. Louise Lassa was difficult. I don't think she was used to the form. They were, you know, what it was it was people who. Um, I can't remember. I don't think Raquel Welch was a day at the beach either. <laughs> I want to ask you about the Grodin episode now, because I always thought oh, that was a put on, beep, but, beep. but that, that it's considered that, that Charles Grodin uh, angered the cast because he because. But well, but, you but, know, but, that's not my recollection yeah. of it because I wrote. I can't remember if there was a samurai. I used to write. Yeah, sure. The samurais. I can't remember if there. I do remember that. It was be, uh, a, a thing where Chuck would s- stop the sketch or ask... Yeah, he wanted to sing second. a song. Okay, yeah. okay. But, I mean, to my knowledge, to my recollection, I don't remember people getting pissed off at that right. because we wrote a lot sure. of those things. And he was a great guy. And he was such a put-on artist, too. And he was, and he was yeah. so tongue-in-cheek. Right. He... Um, to this day, he's a real funny guy. So I don't remember him uh, anything, but I don't have anything but good memories of Chuck. And I remember I reading a story that with Louise Lasser, she was so out of it, that they were planning on doing all of her bits with Chevy Chase <laughs> wearing a Mary Hartman wig. Wow, I missed that meeting. I, I, <laughs> and I remember, actually, because you mentioned her, 
When I was on Saturday Night Live, there was a cue card guy there who was an old guy. Al Siegel? Yes. Yeah. The, yes. 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 Wow. <laughs> Al Siegel. Wow. And he kept on going. If he gave him too many changes between dress and air, he says, I already had one yeah. heart attack. I don't want another. <laughs> and he That's was great. one of these guys who had been in the business like... You know, since like early Greek dramas, <laughs> and now yeah, he held up cue cards for like um, you know uh, Aristophanes. Yes. yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I was talking to him, and he was a very nice old guy. <laughs> and and I said, uh, so you've worked with everybody, and and he goes, yeah, yeah, and I, and I said. Uh, who were the real, who were the worst to work with? And he goes, I don't know. You find most big stars are surprisingly very nice, considerate people, very kind people. And I said, uh, but if you had to name a total bastard, and he immediately goes. <laughs> if you had to. Yeah, if you had to name a total bastard, and he goes, Raquel Welch. Well, yeah, <laughs> I just meant, yeah, and like I said, I can't, re I don't. Re Oh, I do remember. Wait a second. <laughs> it's coming back. It's, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just had this flash. I can't remember. I'm going to get some of this wrong, but this was the essence of it. I can't remember if she had a manager with her or she came by herself, but either she or this manager said, we want to show off her her mind, and they, they kept on saying, oh, she's got an IQ of 176. <laughs> <laughs> and then you come the next day, it was up to 183. Oh, okay. By the time she did the show, it was boiling, okay? Yes. It was like 212. Her IQ kept on going up. And that's what people are interested in watching Raquel right. Welch. I, we could have, you know, we yeah. might as well have Madame Curie if we were to go that way with her. Okay, what are we talking about? But she or her spokesman, I can't remember who it was, so we want to show off, you know, her intelligence and her comedic, uh, you know, potential. We don't, we, we want to get away from the tits and ass part of it, okay? <laughs> she came in with a list of sketches to propose. Each one was... Big tits, big ass. <laughs> right, right. So it was, well, wait a second, we just had that other meeting. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but I couldn't tell you what was in that. God, it was so many years ago. But it was, um, there was nothing memorable about it other than, you know, sometimes, you know, and you've done so much that you tend to remember the experience and not the product. You know, I've, I've done things that were not successful, but in my mind, I remember making that movie or, or that show, mm -hmm. who was my friend, who did I bond with, and it was a good time. That's what I remember. And it's almost like as a, uh, you know, a, a, you know, as an afterthought, it's a footnote going, oh, shit, um, Roger Ebert reviewed, um, I did a movie called North. Yes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger Ebert had a book out called, uh, the title of it was, I hated, 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 hated yeah. this movie. He was quoting was... The, the the review he gave of my movie. Yeah. North, okay. <laughs> Did you carry that review around? I don't. You know, I don't have my wallet on oh, me. Okay. It's downstairs. Okay. In, in oh bag. God! But you gotta, you gotta get it. Can somebody? Can we get? get yes. A, yes. No, no, no. You, you know something? It, it may even be in my other bag. So I tell you what, we. But it's a better thing to do. Go on to your computer. Roger Ebert review North review the review of North. Okay, and if you can't print it out, let's bring over the laptop because I do this in my when I my speaking mm -hmm. engagements. Mm -hmm. I read it on the Letterman show once. I took out my wallet and I read it, and but to me, 
you know, I guess we'll get to review when, De- when Derek gets it. The, you know, the experience was this wonderful experience. Are these readers or those uh, are prescription? Yeah. Oh, these are. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, bringing right. the laptop uh, over. Okay, here is. I won't read the whole review. I will read. Where is this? Okay. Now, let me set this up for you. <laughs> I, this, this is, okay. Come with me to hell, oh, will you? Okay. <laughs> This is what happened. I left SNL. I started writing plays. I wanted to stay in New York. This was before it's Gary Shandling show, which sure. brought me to L.A. I wrote a book called North. Now, our, our son, Adam, was a young boy. He was about six years old. And he was at that age where Robin and I would be at the dinner table and he would look across the table at us. And you knew from the expression on his face, the kid was thinking, I, I, I could do better than these two people. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I wrote a book about a boy. I called him North. And he felt unappreciated by his parents. So he declared himself a free agent and went around the world offering his services as a devoted son to the highest bidding set of parents. I wrote the book and sent the galleys to Rob Reiner, who had hosted the third Saturday Night Live, and we were friends. And we, to this day, we're still very close friends. And he said, you know, I'm becoming, he loved the book, and he had done When Harry Met Sally, he had done uh, A Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, and he had just done A Few Good Men. He said, let's make a movie out of this, okay? Well, this is a writer's dream. You write a book, you're hired to write the screenplay, and uh, a $50 million movie's made. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Jason Alexander, Bruce Willis, Elijah Wood. My Al- Alan Arkin. Alan oh, everybody. Arkin, Dan, Dan, Dan Kathy Aykroyd. Bates. Who's that? Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. Everybody's Reba in Reba McIntyre. Abe Vigoda. Okay, Abe Vigoda. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> yes, Abe, Abe, Abe Vigoda. And, um, and, and there's a big premiere in Hollywood, right? And I fly my parents out uh, uh, from Florida. Did we say Bruce Willis? We said Bruce okay, Willis. Yeah. And my parents are there, and it's the biggest night of my life. Oh, and there was an eight-year-old girl, her first acting job. Her name was Scarlett Johansson. Uh, she was in the movie. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is the biggest night of my life. This is great. Next morning, the reviews come out, okay? And you, I don't know how, what your experience has been, but bad reviews are usually told to you by your family, not by yes. friends. Yes. So my father would call and go, don't read Time Magazine. <laughs> Uh, page 67, <laughs> column three. <laughs> so I wake up the next morning, and Roger Ebert, who's the big guy, sure. it was Siskel and Ebert, right? Roger Ebert writes, I hated this movie. Hated, 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 hated this movie. Hated it. Hated every simpering, stupid, vacant, audience-insulting moment of it. Hated the sensibility that anyone would like it. Hated the implied insult to the audience by its belief that anyone would actually be entertained by it. Now, on the surface, (laughs) this may seem like an unfavorable review, but read it again. I think (laughs) there's subtlety between the words. There's subtlety. I think he sort of liked it. And, and it, we were living in L.A. at the time where everybody roots for everybody else to fail, yes. you know. And my kids would come home from school. My son, Adam, would go, Dad, can we change our last name to Sorkin? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, wasn't there a playground story? There was a playground story. My son, Adam, 
it was shortly after this movie came out. Adam was born in 81. movie came out in 94. So he was 12, 13 years old, okay? He went to a school called Crossroads, which is a private school there. And he had a fight on the playground, not a fist fight, but, you know, a back and forth verbal thing with Mike Ovitz's son. Okay, Chris wow. Ovitz. Okay, so two 12-year-old kids, you're fat, I'm not fat, you're this, you're a bad athlete, this and that. And then Chris Ovitz says, well, your father did North. <laughs> <laughs> two 12-year-old kids fighting oh. about box office receipts. That's cutting. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said to Adam, I said, when he told us this at the, at the dinner table that night, I'm going, what did you say back? He said, well... I said, well, at least people like my father. And I said, oh, good, we're raising him, we're raising him well. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was, you know, and that was just a nightmare. But now I carry it with my wallet, and uh, it's, um, you know, look, if I was the kind of person who was still sort of crippled by that, there would be yeah. something incredibly wrong with that. <laughs> So we'll get to a couple of more of the movies and, and get Gary Shandling's show, but it, but just just take us back for a second. SNL ends after a wonderful five-year run. I, le I left in, uh, yeah, after the 1979-80 season, See, in May of 80. Right before Gilbert came in the Right door. before Gilbert. You guys, oh, you, guys, you, you came in with Gene? Uh, yes, yes. It was the worst time to join Saturday Night Live. Well, yeah, I felt badly for all of you only because it was in the shadow of this, you yeah. know? Yeah, I understood. Now, now the cast changes like in the middle of a bit. <laughs> what you say at the time? It felt like you know. It you're, felt like following. If, the... Yeah, if in the middle of Beatlemania, <laughs> you said uh, John Paul George and Ringo are gone, but there's these four other guys <laughs> called them the Beatles and like them just as much. That's a yeah. great way to put yeah. it. Who else was in your cast? Uh, well, uh, the only two you'd know. Uh, Joe Piscopo and Eddie Murphy. Okay, I remember Denny Dillon. Oh, Denny oh, Dillon. very good. And Gail Mathias. Gail Mathias. Excellent. Yeah. Christine and Ebersole. No, she came later she on. She did? Chris uh, uh, Rocket? What was uh, his name? Chris, yes. Charlie, Charlie Rocket. Charlie, Charlie Rocket. Rocket. And, uh, and, yeah. And Risley. Yeah, and Risley. Whoa. Wow. For you trivia buffs out there, go. Yeah. I was was Tim Kazarinsky in that? I was later. Uh, no, oh, he, he came, came with later on. He came with Ebersole. So what happens now? After five years, no, you've been a, on the biggest thing on television. It was a shock to the system. I wanted to stay in New York. I, I, I wanted to be a New York writer. I was now married. We had our first child, and we're living on the Upper West Side. And I started writing plays, and I wrote that book, North. And um, I had been to the top, and I turned down tons of work. A lot of doors were opened. But I didn't want to do another variety show because mm -hmm. what could possibly be? Did you work this? on the new show a little bit? For well, Lauren? that came much later. Okay. Well, much later in 1984. 84. Right. When the new show came, uh, I worked on that show, mm -hmm. and that was basically, um, you know, it, it was a reunion. You, you're Franken and Davis. Sure. Were I was a on. fan of that show. I was it, sorry to see it go. It, it, I think it lasted 10, 12, yeah. 13 shows yeah. or something like that, and um, I. I wasn't, while I wasn't really struggling, I wasn't thriving either. I was, started writing other things that I wanted to do, magazine pieces and this and that. But then I got a phone call in 86 from my manager, a man named Bernie Brillstein was my manager for 30 years. And he asked me if I knew who Gary Shandling was. And I said, yeah, I've seen him on TV. And uh, he, he says, well, he was doing a, a special for Showtime. 
and they needed a, a fresh set of eyes to help like be the script consultant. So they sent me the script and they flew me out to LA and now I go straight from the airport to whatever restaurant to meet with Gary. And we spoke about the script and we spoke about that special that I would be helping add on. And now I go back to my hotel room and I'm dead to the world because I'm on New York time. I check in, I'm in bed. It's now one o'clock in the morning, which is four o'clock in the morning for my body, right? The phone rings in my hotel and I'm dead to the world. I pick a hello, Alan, it's Gary. I go, oh, hey man, what's doing? Alan, my dog's penis tastes bitter. You think it's his diet or what? <laughs> I called my wife, Robert. I said, I think I found the writing part. <laughs> so for me, having written all those years on SNL, wrote with everybody, but Gilda and I wrote probably we were the team. I, I teamed up with her more than I, I also wrote with Herb Sargent and Ackroyd, but, but Gilda and I were a bit of a team. I, lightning struck twice because he was somebody else who thought the same way that I did, and Shanling and I started its Gary Shanling show, and that lasted four years. Gilbert and I want to talk about the Shanling show, but ju- ju- just before we get off yeah, SNL, sure. yeah. did, Christopher Lee is a favorite of ours. Did you write the, uh, the Mr. Death Oh, God, yes, for, I for, did. For, for, uh, that was originally Gilda and then became there Lorraine? There was a controversy over that, and I know Such that a it's wonderful a, piece. It's, I, I know that it... it it was a weird thing. I had an idea because Christopher Lee played all these, you know, horror. Of course, horror. We're just still trying thing. to get him for the show. He's in oh, his nineties. Oh, is he really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and all I, the English Hammer films. He was yeah. great. He's giant. And so I had this idea where Death comes back to apologize f- to a young girl for taking her dog. Okay, that's all I knew about it. And I pitched it, and we actually did it, I think, in dress rehearsal the previous week. I can't remember who the host was. It might have been a member of the cast uh, who played Mr. Death. It was cut between dress and air, and I remember that Dave Wilson, the director, said, why don't we do that sketch next week when Christopher Lee, because he would be perfect to play Mr. Death. So it was held over to the next week. I can't remember exactly what happened. Um, I, I probably wrote it for Gilda. I wrote it with Herb Sargent. I think Gilda might have contributed to the writing of it. Lorraine Newman had no idea that Gilda was a part of it. Gil, Lorraine was we were, Lorraine was an innocent here in, in this thing. Uh, she wanted to play the role. She ultimately got the role in it. I don't know what happened for that to happen, but I do know that there were some hard feelings over it. But that's, you know, but Lorraine did an amazing job. L- Lorraine, yeah. in my estimation, uh, God, is she, she's, she makes me laugh as much as anybody on the planet. I think she's, to this day, really funny. And I'm looking forward to seeing her at the 40th uh, reunion show. I, I worked with her in uh, Problem Child 2. Oh, I didn't right. know that. Newman. <laughs> now, see, and, and I'm glad you said that because I've heard stories where it makes Lorraine Newman look like a bitch in no, the situation. No, if anything, Lorraine was um, a, a real lady about it, and she felt awful. She had no idea that Gilda was, A, going to do it, and B, was involved in the writing of it. She oh. had no idea. It, 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 she might have been light in the show that week, and so, oh, yeah. Lorraine, you played. No, she was a total innocent, and she felt awful 
when everything came out. I remember seeing it and thinking it was such a tonal shift for the show. It was like a little mini one-act play. And I had seen every episode to that point. It was interesting. Yeah. It was different. I, what I remember from that bit, the one line that I remember is the little girl says to death, did, did you kill our Lord? And he goes, no, that was the Romans. That was the Romans. <laughs> yeah. well, I remember, God, so many years ago. Yeah, because my mother used to say to me, because I used to have friends who weren't Jewish. When we were little, we were five yeah. and six, and when they would go to catechism, let's say, or parochial school, they'd come back, you know, after one day saying, I can't play with you anymore. You killed our, our Lord. <laughs> and I thought, Jesus, what, what a day at school a that was. Okay. So I would tell my parents, you know, Joey won't play with me anymore. And she would say, no, no, we didn't kill him. The Romans did. So I put that in that sketch. <laughs> now, also, I got to get to the other part of Saturday Night Live that it was so famous like about like the drugs going on and you know craziness. if there were I didn't see it because I was wow. so high myself I couldn't <laughs> see what anybody else else was doing you know um, look it was the 70s and um, you know I I can't point fingers or anything like that. I have to start with myself. Let's put it this way. I don't know how I'm alive to this day. Yeah. Given today's standards, you know, and what we know to be incredibly horrible for you and your yeah. body, there's no reason for me to be sitting over here. But I would have come back from the dead to be on this podcast. <laughs> Pulled that out of my ass, That's didn't I? That's an honor. <laughs> Well, I want to just tell our 12 listeners, if you can find that Christopher Lee sketch, and it's in the box set, it is oh, ab- it absolutely is. Okay. worth watching. It's just it's in the slot that Milton Berle would have been in, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, and, so back to Shandling. Now, after a couple of years, this you, you find yourself a new partner? I found a crime. new partner in Gary, and um, he made me laugh a lot. He was, um, you know, he was the single version of me. You know, I had gone out to uh, L.A. to do his special, he told me about this idea he had for a show where he spoke to camera and he played himself and he was a single guy. Coincidentally, I had had an idea that I was going to pitch to NBC about a married guy who was, well, I wanted to do my version you're, you're, of Dick Van Dyke. A, a comedy writer, your, your character. Yeah, wasn't it, it was a Dick, yeah. my Dick Van Dyke right. show I wanted to do. So we married the two ideas together and um, this was Showtime... You know, this was 86. There was no really original comedy programming on cable. There had been a show on HBO. What was the name of it? It had the word on, and it was two words. And the second word was on with... Dream on? Dream on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and But Showtime, I don't believe, had any original comedy programming. And we came along, and they left us alone. They totally left us alone. And um, it snuck in there, you know. And, but, you know, a lot of people didn't get Showtime in those days. And so I remember what I would do is I would, <laughs> oh I would make cassettes and mail them to the world. The postal bills, the same post offices that don't exist, thrive for me. I would send out these things, look at the show I'm doing, because nobody saw it. So I think after the third season, the Fox Network came into existence. And what they did was they gave, we gave Showtime an exclusive window for 30 days to show its Gary Shandling show. And as of day 31, Fox was able to show it. I remember editing it for commercials and taking out some of the stuff that wasn't, you know, allowable. 
And it was it was an hour on for an hour. They coupled it with Tracy Ullman on Sunday nights, uh, so that's how it got a little bit more exposure. Mm-hmm. Not that Fox had a big universe back then either, but it was a, f- a few more people saw it. And um, such a smart show, and it was a show that rewarded people of our generation that grew up on traditional sitcoms by turning it on its head. Well, that's absolutely right, and I must say that Gary, for me, once again. It was, to my mind, to the sitcom, what SNL was to the variety show, what Letterman was to the uh, talk show. Whenever, you know, we had a thing on SNL, and, and Gary and I did this on its Gary Shandling show, when SNL would be, okay, Carol Burnett would do it this way, how are we going to do it? So with Gary and I would be happy days or whatever the the, the current and even the good, the really, really good sitcoms, which, you know, Happy Days was on and Mary Tyler Moore, and, and, and these were good shows, but they would do it this way. We we went a little bit more theatrical with it, you know, so um, it, it worked, we, you know. Now, one thing that audiences then thought was new, but really wasn't new, was the breaking the fourth wall. Oh, my talk. God, you know... It was, look, we paid homage to uh, George Burns, whose room we're in right That's now. Right. Yes, yes. I think he's buried in this room. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, Burns, in the middle of a bit, would come out, stand in front of the TV, watch the TV, and go, looks like Gracie. Yeah. <laughs> the first time. Uh, you know what he did? Now, I'm going to get the players wrong, Okay. There was Harry Von Zell, and there was another, Harry Morton. Oh, yes. One replaced the other. Okay, I I think Von Zell was first and was replaced by Harry Morton, or it could have been the other way, but let's say it was that. Well, it was Fred Clark. Okay, was it Fred Clark who I'm thinking of? Yes. This is what I'm doing. Okay, correct me then. Then Maybe it was Fred Clark. What Burns did was in the middle of a bit where whoever we're talking about was married, okay, he said, I just want to tell you all that this guy, whoever it was, is leaving the show. He's done well. We wish him well. And he will be replaced by, and he brought out the replacement, and he says, we replaced by him, Fred Clark, Harry Von Zell, whoever it was, and he will, and, and, and whoever the wife was, like was B. Benedict or somebody yeah. like that. <laughs> you two are now husband and wife. Okay, continue with the scene. He made a cast change in the middle of the bit, and they just did it uh, effortlessly. Which is so hip. When you think, think about, about it, it yeah. in the yeah. middle of a scene, replacing him, introducing, okay, now you're a husband and wife, now, yeah. now play nicely. And B. Benedict, she was the, she was uh, like the Trixie character, uh, Rubble's, Barney she was, Rubble's Yeah, she wife. was Betty Rubble, <laughs> yeah. the voice of Betty yeah. Rubble. That's how, as a kid, I She was it. also a Petticoat Junction. That's right. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. God. <laughs> I, I think that was, is that the first example of a show, certainly of a sitcom, breaking the fourth wall like that, where a character steps out of character? I, I don't know how far Jack Benny went. Yeah. I know he was in front of the curtain. I but know Benny, he, but it was a different show with a different... He, yeah. he well, a different, Benny pretended pretend. he was on stage talking to an audience. <laughs> right. That's exactly Who I don't right. think was ever there. Yeah. Um, oh, we were talking about Groucho breaking the fourth wall in in, in uh, horse feathers. Just stops oh, the scene just, and walks out to the ca- and addresses the camera. Absolutely, and then goes back to the scene. So it wasn't that Burns had invented it, but uh, I, I might have television. seen it for the first time on television with Burns. Sure. And then, but you know, I was of the generation where I first 
knew about Groucho Marx from You Bet Your Life and then learned that they were Marx Brothers movies. So that the TV show came first. Yeah, that, that's how it happened with me, too. The same order, yeah. right? And then when I saw Duck Soup and Horse Feathers, I just went nuts. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's unbelievable. I, well, Duck Soup is the one that killed, their, that killed them at Paramount. Is that, that right? That was the biggest loser. And now you look at it, and it's ingenious. That's their, that's their best film. Yeah. Yeah, lost them their contract. There's a book that may, we might want to look up the exact title to. It's written by Roy Blunt Jr. And it's called, remember in Duck Soup was Hail, Hail Fredonia. Sure. Yes. This name of this book is Hail, Hail something else, and we'll find out in a second. Our research, our crack yeah. researcher. Our crack researcher, Dara Godfrey. And, and if you read this book, it's about the making of duck soup. Really? Not only how certain lines were and the script changes and this and that, but it's against a backdrop of World War II starting. Here you and go. All the un- research has arrived. Hail, 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 hail euphoria. And if I recommend this book to any Marx Brothers, thanks, Dara. Thank to you, Dara. Any, any, to any Marx Brothers fan, because it puts it into a global context of what was happening in Europe with the World War II was going to happen soon and, and all of that. Now, when they asked Groucho later, did you know, did you purposely make some sort of satirical comment you know, about what was happening? Yeah. So we were just trying to be funny. But if you do look at what... It was in the midst of... It's pretty subversive. It's very yeah, subversive. I don't see how they couldn't have known. There was nothing like it before. Maybe The Great Dictator. But that, well, that was later. So there was nothing like it. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really pretty fascinating, you know. And it was the like one of the earliest political... Uh, satires in films. That's what I mean. It's yeah. A, they, quest- they went to war because yeah. he called them an upstart. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> it's, a stu- it's a studio, yeah, basically talking about how stupid war is. And so it was just- so surreal that, like, their costumes change in between scenes. <laughs> yeah. Like, he'll yeah. have a civil yeah. war outfit <laughs> yeah. on. And- yeah. You know, and, and Margaret Dumont killed me in all Wonderful. those movies. Yeah. And I had Essential. heard somewhere that she had no idea what, what the joke say. was. Yeah, they, they, they <laughs> said that's what made it so funny, <laughs> she that she no, really didn't know. no clue. <laughs> so the Shandling show is a, a big success. And and what happened then? I mean, you're writing movies, too, while this is I going wrote, on. I co-wrote wrote, Dragnet with Dan right. Aykroyd, and that did well. Um, uh so you're branching out into other media. I'm branching out into other, and I started having plays produced here in New York at the Ensemble Studio Theater. They have a marathon every year, so mm-hmm. I started doing that. And um, I hear you say you miss the immediacy of SNL, that you wrote the thing that day, and there was the laugh. Well, and well there was nothing. I, I, right now I write Broadway shows, I write movies, and I write books. And mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm lucky, it sees the light of day two years from now. Right. Here, they write the show on Tuesday. It's on television Saturday, you, I remember, you know, there's a dress rehearsal at, for us was 7.30, I think it might be 8 o'clock now, it doesn't matter, with a full audience, and you do the whole show. Everybody's in wardrobe, and the band plays, it's a show. And then between dress and air, it's determined what's going to stay in the show, what's going to be cut, and whatever's going to stay, you try to punch up, and you bring, you know, make it as, as good as possible, and bring it to cue cards, Al, the cue card right. guy. <laughs> <laughs> the late Al. And um, I remember that I would 
go upstairs if I got my changes into cue cards early enough. Then it wasn't 24-hour um, news. You know, it was the 11 o'clock news. I'd go upstairs, watch the 11 o'clock news, and if something struck me as funny, I'd write a joke, and, and it would be on television a half hour later. When I was with SNL, there were two shows where while they were on the air live doing Weekend Update, I was under the desk writing jokes and handing That's it up great. to them. One time in particular is we did a live show from the Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And we had all of these jokes about the floats and the doubloons and the thing that was going to pass the reviewing stand where Jane Curtin and Buck Henry were reviewing the, uh, the parade. Something happened at the start of the parade that couldn't be predicted. There was an accident and somebody died. Okay, so now we have all these jokes about this float that never came. Okay, I'm under the desk writing jokes about this parade that didn't exist. And finally, remember the last joke I wrote was that Mardi Gras is French for no parade. That's funny. That's funny. I was under the desk handing it up. That's funny. So you were doing, at this point, a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. When the Shandling show ended... I um, I had had a choice to make, and this was a big mistake. It was a huge mistake. I I was being offered all sorts of. These was the days of the big studio deals, and Castle Rock, uh, which was my friend Rob Reiner's company, offered me a, a three-year deal with them to create TV shows for them. And I was hot off of Shandling. My manager Bernie Brillstein. Uh, CBS was in dead last in those years, and they signed, boy, oh, boy, God help me, Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neill. Oh, good sports. And they, okay, and I got talked in, I allowed myself to get talked into doing it. And it was the only move I think I've ever made for the wrong reason. And I used to wake up in the middle of the night, my wife, Robin, would say to me, What's the matter? And, and she said, you don't want to do this show. But I talked myself into doing it. It would be a big exposure. Maybe this would be the road to becoming. Oh, I had also turned down. Previous to that, they asked me to be one of the producers on Cosby. I turned it down. And one of the producers on Roseanne and turned it down. So I'm going, I got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so I chose this. And uh, it was the wrong move. Um, we had... Uh, a, a, a cast that had about three or four Tony Awards among them. The writer's room had, oh, God, 17, 18 Emmy Awards among everyone, but the show just didn't work. For people that don't remember it, it was a sort of, a, it was about two people running a, an ESPN type yeah, of sports show. Yeah, it was way a, before Sport Night. Right, sports right, Night, it was, right. it was a US, ESPN kind of it was thing. It a sort of screwball comedy approach. Well, it, this was just, it was, um, you know, it was one of those situations that... Um, it just didn't work. It didn't work maybe because of the, the, the chemistry between the two of them. And they were living with each other. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know? And, um, but then when that ended, when that went belly up, I, I did sign with uh, Rob Ryan. It kept his doors open for me. So I went there and did a couple of movies, did a number of pilots. And, you did the story uh, of us. did the story of us with right. Bruce Willis right. and, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Did a few pilots with Rob. Did a special with Tom Hanks and other people uh, uh, at NBC, uh, at ABC. And um, ultimately, uh, there was a dip. There was a dip because nothing was getting traction. Nothing. And I, um, whatchamacallit, then my, my friend Larry David came along with Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
and I was a uh, consulting producer on that for a couple of years. So that breathed life into my exposure anyway. And uh, that you know, and I was even on a show, you know, the last season of it. So uh, and then when Billy Crystal asked me to co-write uh, Seven Hundred Sundays with him, and I jumped all over that and. That's what basically brought me back to New York. We came here for rehearsals and previews and, and whatever. And I remember checking into what was then called the Riga Royal Hotel. It's now the London Hotel, where it says how many nights your stay will be. And it said 50. So I was here a long time. And our kids were getting older, and they were starting to tip in this direction as they were leaving the house. So we, we came home, and it was a good move. It's, uh, it, it proved to be okay. I've been writing books, and I have... Uh, uh, and tell us about The Other Shulman. Well, The Other Shulman was a novel that I wrote, which won the Thurber Prize. You had mentioned it in your lovely uh, intro uh, <laughs> of, of American Yuma. It was, uh, and, and that was very... Because I love the premise of the book. Well, it was, it was, it was an autobiographical novel about a guy who was having trouble in his career. Okay, he wasn't a comedy writer. He owned a stationery store, and he was having a rocky time in his marriage. In his home. So what he basically did, he did what I did. When, 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 when things weren't clicking for me, I saw a sign that said, you too can complete a marathon. And this sign was in a Ben and Jerry's in LA. <laughs> and I went home, and I told Rob, and I, said, I told her about this sign, and she said, you, could, you should do that. I could do what? You should run a marathon. I said, I'm a Jew. <laughs> At best, I run for a bus. At best. And she said, no. She says, you're feeling sorry for yourself. This is after that horrible North Review and all that. And some TV shows got canceled. And she said, you got to get a, you got to refresh your head. You got to revive. You need a goal to achieve. You got to get out of the house. Got to get off the couch. So I joined a running group. And I entered and I ran the New York City Marathon. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me uh, just uh, correct myself here a little bit. Um, when I say I ran the marathon, yeah. let's talk about the word ran. Um, you know the New York City Marathon. You start in Staten Island, go over the Verrazano Bridge. Yeah. Now you're in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, the Bronx, Manhattan again, into Central Park West, Tavern on the Green, 26.2 miles later, you run a marathon. I line up with 33,000 other people. On your mark, get set, go. I leave Staten Island. I go over the Verrazano Bridge. Now I'm in Brooklyn, about four miles into the race, when word comes back that the winner (laughs) (laughs) had not only crossed the finish line, but was already on a plane back to Kenya. (laughs) But it it was a nice day, so I went... (laughs) But moving back here did did prove to be uh, a, a wonderful thing because uh, I, that book won an award. That book is about a guy running the marathon and what his life is like today and a lot of flashbacks. And it's very clever because each chapter is another mile, so there's 26.2 yeah. um, uh, chapters in the book. There are a children's uh, picture book called Our Tree Named Steve. I wrote a novel with Dave Barry called Lunatics, which they're threatening to make a movie out of. And I've got a couple more books coming up. And I was asked to write the uh, the book for a Broadway musical version of Feel the Dreams. So wow. uh, hopefully that will happen. But I was you know, asked if I'd like to do it. And you never saw a Jew raise his hand faster than wonder- I did. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful movie and a wonderful book. And speaking of Larry David, 
you, you, did I hear this correctly or find this in my research? You inspired the, uh, the famous Pez Seinfeld episode? Larry and I uh, went to, when we were hanging out in New York, okay, we would do stuff on a Sunday afternoon. And um, there was, uh, we went on the Upper West Side in one of those like churches or something there. There was a, sa- a Sunday afternoon concert given by a pianist named Claude Franck. And Larry and I were sitting in the first row. And on the ground, on the floor in front of one of us was a Pez dispenser. And for some reason, we got the giggles because of the Pez dispenser. <laughs> and years later... It was, he used it. <laughs> he used it. <laughs> to his credit. Now, Larry is a genius that can take the smallest little thing that we all pass over and don't even think about, and he'll make a, 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 a whole meal out of it. It's something that, you know, I, I just marvel at. Stuff that we just sort of glide by, you know. He'll stop and he'll, he'll, he'll make something out of it. Like Pez dispensers. Yeah, it turned out to be a, an iconic television moment. Who were some of the other people back at the improv? <laughs> back oh, when you guys we met? There. Yeah. Okay. Glenn Super. Yeah. Oh, the bullhorn. Oh, He's my God. A bullhorn. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Ed Bluestone, who had the greatest one-liners. Funny guy. Okay. Oh, yeah. He had great one-line jokes. There's a lot of ways you can be <laughs> offensive at someone's funeral. <laughs> Shake the widow's hand with an electric buzzer. <laughs> he used to talk about Jewish hunting. <laughs> we, you shoot the animals while they're still in the cage. <laughs> And he said, and sometimes they make it really daring. They, they leave his feet untied. Okay. So he was there. Wayne Klein was there. Jay Leno was there. Oh, yes. I worked with Wayne Klein. He, went, he was a Leno writer. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Yeah. And, really good Andy guy. Andy Kaufman would come in. Andy Kaufman would come in. Uh, um, wait a second. Robert Klein would come in every so often. Uh, Brenna. Dangerfield Ma- all the time. Da- Dangerfield. Um, We're talking about the catch now in the 70s? Well, catch. Or the, or the old catch. The catch from the 70s. They're talking about 74, 75. Well, yeah. catch. Had a, diff- was... had a different... Some performers only performed in one place, and some performed in both places. I when, when I was working at catch, like in the very beginning, uh, Gabe Kaplan would still be there. Well, no, was this before Welcome Back, Carter? Yes. Yeah. He used to do it as a bit, the Welcome Back, Oh, Carter. I didn't know that. Yeah, he used to talk about... There was this group, and there was Horshack. Oh, the Sweat Hogs. Yeah. Oh, wow. See, and, I didn't even know that. And uh, then, yeah, it was just like another bit he had. There was, um, I saw him a couple of years ago. Uh, I wasn't playing, I don't play poker, but I was over somebody's house, and there was a poker game. There. I think he's like a, a gambler, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, he's a championship yeah, poker player. He, but back then, there was a woman named Emily Levine. I oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was uh, Billy. But Billy Crystal was most, I don't think Catch as much as, I think it was Catch more so yeah. than the improv. He was there. Same with Brenna, I think. I, I remember him mostly from uh, Catch a Rising Star. Oh, there was a guy, Lenny Schultz. Oh, Lenny oh, Schultz. Oh, yes, yes. He's still around. Is he really? Sure. Well, I don't know if he works. He's alive. He's, a, he's alive. Lenny Schultz. Yeah. He, I remember him in a chicken suit. For oh, some yeah. Reason. Yeah, he did. He would just go nuts on stage. <laughs> he would come in with a chaise lounge, and he would play, open and close it, and he would yeah. then, like a prop, an accordion. A prop yeah. comic. 
Oh, uh, Larry Raglan. Larry Raglan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, oh God. I, I when when Bob Saget was on this show, he asked me to sing the famous Larry Raglan song, "Dummy in the Window." Oh God, Dummy in the Window. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Someone else remembers Dummy in the Window. Well, wait a second. Not only Dummy in the Window, you remember Carl Waxman? Yes. Okay, who was who had a reputation at the time for yeah, uh, yes for appropriating uh, other people's material. And I think uh, Billy Crystal. I, I thought uh, it was Richard Lewis. Oh, okay. Richard said about Carl. Well, Carl well, drove by after work one day, and Richard Lewis said, "That's a stolen car." <laughs> I, I think it was Billy Crystal who was there, and and Carl Waxman was on stage. <laughs> and afterwards, Billy Crystal went over to him and said, you know that bit you do about the supermarket? Uh, Robert Klein's been doing that for six years. <laughs> and Carl Waxman goes, oh, yeah? Well, I've been doing it for four <laughs> Well, so it's sort of hilarious. Yeah, it's squatters' rights in a way. No, so he's not only a joke thief, but but is bad at math. He's bad. He's bad at math. Thinking that four was bigger than six. Um, there was there was there was a couple. Oh, the um, what was the name of the the Untouchables? Was a group. Uh, yes, Untouchables. yes. Marvin Braverman. Uh, Buddy Mantia. Oh, Bobby. Bobby Alto. Yes. They used to... Yeah, Buddy sat in on one of our podcasts. And then then it... Uh, when Marvin Braverman moved to L.A. to try to pursue a career there, then it was just Alto and Mantia. Oh, they, they, yes. there was no longer the Untouchables. Yes. They were just... Yeah. I, didn't, I yeah. didn't know that they went through that. <laughs> I, I, was Dennis Wolfberg around then? Was he, oh, yeah. Oh, the wow. Guy? Funny guy. Wow. Yeah. No, this is... Um, Ronnie Shakes. Oh, yeah. Oh, he was funny. He died, right? Yeah, he so died Dennis. like 40 or something. Yeah, and, and Dennis, too. Dennis he, died young. But Ronnie Shakes had a line that made me crazy that I loved. He said that he had been going to this same shrink for like eight years. And he said, in this afternoon, I saw him. And he said three words to me. After eight years, that brought tears to my eyes. No hablo inglés. <laughs> now, because we all do this for a living, yeah. but there are certain oh, jokes and certain things you go, wow, okay? That was when I was with SNL, when, when we used to have read through, I used to just sit back. And, you know, you, there'd be other people who write sketches that go, shit, I should have written that. Oh, I could have done this. But when Dan Aykroyd read anything that he wrote, is if I live to be a thousand, there's no way I can write basimatic. Where right, you take yeah. a fish, put it in a blender, and yeah. then drink it. You know, I just sat back and enjoyed the ride. I was always fond of the joke about when Professor Backwards was murdered, the joke that was on update. Yeah. Was that your joke? No, or? it was Michael O'Donnell who wrote that joke. Professor Backwards died. He was murdered, and it seems like because nobody responded to his cries of pleh, pleh. <laughs> that was Michael O'Donoghue. I mean, joke. Michael O'Donoghue was this genius. Yeah. When he would write something, I just sat back and, um, you know, I with O'Donoghue, I, I did a couple of speaking engagements at colleges with him, and we did two on the same trip, like the University of Akron, and we had a we did it. I did 
40 minutes, and then he came out and did 40 minutes. And now we're driving from Akron to some place in Indiana, and I can't remember the exact school, okay? And he says, what if we do something together at this next place? I said, okay, like what? Now, Franken had been very, very successful. He was writing point-counterpoint uh, as a bit for Dan sure. Aykroyd and Jane Curtin. So he says, what if we do a point-counterpoint? And I said, okay, fine. So I said, what should the subject be? So he said to me, why don't you do the anti, anti-Semitism point? <laughs> And I'll do the pro-anti-Semitism <laughs> counterpoint. I had no idea what... I said, okay, fine. So before the, the performance, I went to my room and I wrote the anti-anti-Semitism point, having no idea what he was going to write, okay? We're in the middle of God's country in a field house. So I did 40 minutes, Michael did 40 minutes, and then he says, and now bring Alan back and he and I are going to do point counterpoint he says here with the um, anti-anti-semitism point is Alan and I had written something it wasn't very fun I didn't know how to make this funny maybe there was a, a titter or two in it and it was quick and now he does the pro-anti-semitism <laughs> counterpoint <laughs> and he starts off saying Alan, you overweight heeb fuck. <laughs> he, he continues to whatever he said, call me every Jewish slur that my people have been trying to get rid of yeah. for centuries. Oh my God. He, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. I have a, there's one other story about him, which is probably better than this one. Um, I was producing uh, the Weekend Update segment of the show, the third or fourth. Well, Michael was only there a couple of years, so whenever he was there. And uh, he called me. He said, what if Weekend Update is brought to you by a product that we make up? I said, okay, fine, go for it. So this particular week, he had Don Pardo say, and now Weekend Update brought to you by Pussy Whip. Oh, yes. The dessert topping for cash. Sure, okay. remember it well. And it worked really great. So there was this censor on the show, Jane Crowley. I don't know if she was there when you were No, there. no. I had one named Clotworthy. Oh, Bill Clotworthy. Yeah. Good guy. She, she was on, on the show. And the following week, I wanted to do a sponsor for Weekend Update. So for the dress rehearsal, I had Pardo say, and now Weekend Update brought to you by Blue Balls. Blue balls, B L E E U. Blue balls, the cheese snack from France. Okay, (laughs) it works great during the dress rehearsal. Jane Crowley comes out of the control room and she finds me and she says, "You can't say that when we go on the air." I can't say what. She says, "You can't say blue balls." I go, "Why?" And she says, "Because it has to do with the male genitalia." I said, "Well, last week you let us say." Pussy Whip, which is clearly the female genitalia, but now this week, what kind of sexist organization are you running here? (laughs) And she said, give me a minute. And she goes to the control room, picks up a phone, calls God, I guess, 
She comes back 10, 15 minutes later. She finds me and she says, Alan gave a lot of thought and I've come to the conclusion that because I gave you pussy whip last week, I'll be more than happy to give you blue balls this week. <laughs> that's great. And I just said, um, that's not necessary. Just let us say it on TV. We'll call it even. You know? <laughs> that's great. I, I, just, I just remembered a censor joke and having to do with my trays, by the way. <laughs> I did one joke with the trays saying, you know, Dolly Parton holding them against my chest. Right. And, and then I held it against my crotch saying Dolly Parton's brother. <laughs> so <laughs> so they said, uh, this girl goes, uh, okay, this 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 woman there with, with the headset on the Janet Jackson headset sure. that they all wear. She goes, All right, I I have to check it with uh with the studio. Uh, okay, and she explains the joke to them, and very seriously, she turns to me and says, um, "Keep the tits, drop the balls." <laughs> yeah, that, I love here's it. a note. Here's a good note to get. <laughs> oh, and before I forget, because we were talking about Ronnie Shakes, maybe we'll put it back in there. My favorite Ronnie Shakes joke was one that he said. My biggest fantasy in life is to have sex with two women, not in a nighttime and in a whole life. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you guys got to, you have to get to dinner. So oh, we God. Should, we, oh, should, yes. we should wrap this up. Okay. Can, can real, real quick before we go, could we get you to tell the, uh, the boxer story? Which is such a wonderful story. Well, yeah, I've done it on TV a few times. Do you want me to do it? I you? think it's I, uh, for people that haven't heard it. It's 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 worth, I had, worth, worth um, repeating. When I was running the marathon, okay, it was like running through my life because you know I was born in Brooklyn. My dad always had his place in Manhattan. The Yankees were in the Bronx, so it was you know sense memories. And I remember running through um, Queens. And I had this flashback because Simon and Garfunkel, my favorite singers, were from Queens. And it just it, it brought back a memory I had from when I was in college. Uh, I had a, 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 a poetry writing class. And the teacher was this 92-year-old woman, this old crone named uh, Ruth Katz. And I was failing the class. All right, and I, if, if I failed the class, who knows, I might have failed out of college. Vietnam was raging. So I had one more shot at submitting a poem that maybe she would like. And like I said, Paul Simon was my idol. To this day, you know, it's uncanny what kind of poet he is. Uh, so what I did was, figuring she's 92, she wouldn't recognize the fact that I submitted the words to the boxer <laughs> as my poem. She's 92. So I submitted it. We, we handed our journals on Friday. On Monday, we're in class. She's handing back the journals. And she said, I read a poem this weekend that just knocked my socks off. Alan. <laughs> Alan, can you come up and read it to the, to the class? <laughs> so, and I'm going, no, I, I really don't. I'm glad you like my poem, but I, I don't like you know, talking in front of people. I, I, yeah. I just don't like that. And she prevails on me. Now, you understand, 
everyone in the class are my friends, or my age at least, all of whom had record collections, and I'm about to read the liner notes to the biggest selling <laughs> sure. album. It won like 20 Grammys right, that right. year, okay? So I get up in front of the class, I look at the time, and I see there's still 40 minutes left in the period, so there's no way I'm running out the yeah. clock here. I take one more look over at Dr. Katz, was very disappointed to see she was still alive, okay? <laughs> and I take the poem and I start going, I am just a poor boy, though my story seldom told. <laughs> I've squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jest, the <laughs> man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. I take a breather, I look over the paper, and the whole class is like, what? <laughs> huh? And, uh, and I look over at Dr. Katz, and she's beaming. She's just beaming at this Jew poet who's <laughs> somehow captured the grittiness of New York streets. And she goes, continue. Oh, fuck. When I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station, running scared, laying low, seeking out the poor quarters where the ragged people go, <laughs> looking for the places only they would know. And that's when it happened. That's when everyone in the class started singing, lie, la, lie, 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 lie. And I, I look over at my teacher, the 92-year-old woman just says to the rest of the class, it's inspiring, isn't it? <laughs> my favorite story. You know, you reminded me. <laughs> Dinner's going to no, be late. No, no, it wasn't even like a funny story, but you were talking about the Vietnam War somewhere at home. I still have a draft registration card. Wow. Really? Because by law, you had to go in and register for the draft. And I remember my mother going with me. And that, so that was a scary time. It was very period. scary. Did you, you in, what number did you get in the draft? Do you remember? Was it high enough to uh, oh, oh. exempt you? Well, or? they never actually notified me, thankfully. Oh, because there was yeah. a lottery, if you remember. They yes, picked uh, yes. 366 but, dates. But, but I had the card that I was wow. registered. No, it's real scary stuff. Very, very scary. Anyway, what you, you have some stuff to plug right now. Oh, I have a, um, a, a young adult book uh, coming out in September. Uh, it's a real funny book that I wrote with a guy named Adam Mansback. Adam Mansback wrote a children's book a couple of years ago that sold a gazillion copies. The name of the book is Go to Fuck to Sleep. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, okay. yes. And it's really funny. And what's really, really funny, if you listen to the audio version, Samuel L. Jackson is reading a story to, to a it. little kid. And Samuel L. Jackson, go to fuck to sleep, yeah. him getting angry. So we met a couple, about a year and a half ago, and um, we wrote a young adult book um, called, uh, right now it's tentatively called uh, Benjamin Franklin, Huge Pain in My Ass, okay? But hype, uh, we may not be able to use the word ass. It's, it's amazing that I wrote a, I'm writing a book with a guy who wrote Go to Fuck to Sleep, 
That was okay, but ass might be bad here. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll, I'll plug that. And, and Field of Dreams. Well, God knows. Yeah. I'm just hoping that, that that comes about. And I'm writing another book with Dave Barry. So, um, which like is we said, prolific. At, at, the most, at the moment, untitled. Well, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast <laughs> from the George Burns Room and the Friars Club in New York. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and we've been talking to someone who may or may not be the tallest Jew writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Bruce J. Friedman was tall. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's tall. It's hilarious. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. Some major office supply stores are closing, but the good news is that you can find low prices on supplies you need at Walmart. They have a broad assortment of office supplies, everything from copy paper to coffee. Right now, they have five packs of Georgia Pacific 20-pound 88 bright paper on rollback for just $13.47 and Avery 1.5-inch heavy-duty clear cover binders for just $6.74. You'll find savings like that on all kinds of essential items. So stock up on the most important office supply of all. Savings. Save money. Live better. Walmart. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Schleichinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years, one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and 3 comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.